Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Deep Dive, a Dallas County public defender podcast that seeks to educate, inform, and expose our listeners to what is really going on in the American justice system and what is happening in our Dallas County courts. I am your host, Lynn Pride Richardson, and I am the Chief Public Defender for Dallas County. We have three incredibly gifted lawyers as guests for today's podcast, and it is fortunate for me and Dallas County that all three are division chiefs in our office. First, we have Christina Dean, who is chief of our capital division. Rhonda Riken, a former municipal judge, supervises the CPS division in the juvenile and sometimes family courts. Jordan Pollock is chief and currently the sole member of our Padilla Immigration Criminal Law Division. All three have super impressive resumes. I will give you a little bit of information about their backgrounds and their many achievements, and hopefully they will expand on that during the interviews. Let's start with Christy Dean. Again, she is the chief of our Capital Murder Division. They represent individuals when the state is either seeking death or life in prison. Christy was actually a member of our inaugural team when we started the division years ago that consisted of three highly skilled, experienced lawyers who were well respected by the legal community. An amazing investigator, Jimmy Sperger, who had previously worked for the district attorney's office, joined the team, and we had a dedicated paralegal. Christy is a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin, where she was awarded her undergraduate degree and her Juris Doctorate. She is licensed to practice before the United States Supreme Court and has served as a staff attorney in the Fifth District Court of Appeals in Dallas for Chief Justice Linda Thomas and Justice Elizabeth Lang Myers. In her 25 years of practice, Christy has literally touched over 100 death penalty cases in either pretrial and post-conviction litigation. She has argued death penalty appeals before the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans, the Court of Criminal Appeals, and in federal district courts throughout Texas. She filed a mandamus action in Enray Allen, which resulted in the Court of Criminal Appeals at that time agreeing that in a death penalty case, the trial court may make a determination pretrial on whether the defendant is intellectually disabled. We are extremely fortunate to have Chris Dean leading our team in the Dallas County Public Defender's Office. Next, we have Rhonda Riken. Rhonda currently serves as division chief of our child protection unit. She has been with the office since March of 2012. I can tell you, Rhonda is a tireless and fierce advocate representing children in our CPS division. She is a graduate of the University of North Texas, where she received her Bachelor of Arts in Radio, Television, and Film. She received her Doctorate of Jurisprudence from the University of Houston. Rhonda has had a multifaceted career in the legal profession. She has been a misdemeanor, juvenile, and domestic violence grant prosecutor. She has also been a community outreach liaison for a DA's office. She was an assistant district attorney in Hempstead, Texas, where she advised county officials, including the commissioner's court. Although she is now on the other side, and we are, of course, eternally grateful for that, she has also represented Child Protective Services in the past. 
Rhonda, as I mentioned earlier, has been a part-time municipal judge. She previously worked for a law firm in San Antonio, Texas, doing employment law and has had her own solo practice before representing clients in not just the family or juvenile courts, but in the adult criminal system. That works well since so many of our clients have cases not only in the criminal courts, but have also other cases and been involved in CPS investigations and inquiries or have children in the juvenile justice system or may even have been in the juvenile system when they were kids. As I stated when introducing Christy before, we are so fortunate to have Rhonda leading the charge to protect our most vulnerable and most valuable citizens, our children. There is an old saying, I thank my lucky stars. Well, the stars must have been perfectly aligned when our third guest, Jordan Pollock, walked into our public defender universe. Jordan is the chief of our Padilla Immigration Criminal Law Division, the first of its kind in the entire state of Texas, which set the tone and encouraged other indigent defense offices throughout the state to set up a Padilla division within their offices as well. Jordan received her Juris Doctorate with honors from the University of Texas School of Law and her bachelor's with honors from Duke University. Before coming to the Dallas County Public Defender's Office, Jordan served as an Equal Justice Works Fellow at Public Council in Los Angeles, California, where she instituted a legal orientation program at two Orange County detention centers where she represented immigrants in removal proceedings. Before attending law school, she was an accredited representative of the New York Legal Assistance Group, where she represented clients in affirmative immigration matters. Jordan is currently an adjunct professor at Texas A&M School, where she teaches a course in crimigration. Is that actually a word? I've never heard of that before. She serves as the chair of the Texas Criminal Defense Lawyers Immigration Committee and provides training for legal practitioners, including prosecutors, defense lawyers, and judges on immigration laws and what is essentially the changing dynamics in our immigration policies across the United States. In her role here as our immigration criminal law specialist, she advises both public defenders and the private defense bar. She provides advice in the form of written advisals, which allows attorneys to satisfy their professional responsibilities as outlined in the Supreme Court case Padilla v. Kentucky. Welcome to all three of you. I'm going to start this off by asking all three of you the same question. Actually, two questions. Number one, what drew you to do this kind of work? And really, what motivates you to continue doing this? So we're going to start with Rhonda. Well, I guess I should start by saying that I became a lawyer because of my brother and a rattlesnake. Hey, can you explain that to our podcast listeners? So I grew up on a small farm in East Texas. And um, my brother, when he was in high school and I had just gone away to college, um, got into a little trouble with the law because of a rattlesnake. Um, we, he went out to do um, some hay to the horses and came across a rattlesnake. And that was part of our duties, living on a ranch and, and growing up on this small ranch. We had lots of duties that we had to do each day. And um, when he came back the next day, he brought his shotgun because in case he incurred, encountered that rattlesnake again, he wanted to make sure that he took care of it. Um, so it wouldn't bite him or one of the horses or whatever. And he was running a little late and he was a freshman in college at the time at a little junior college. 
and he didn't think anything about it. He just, you know, took care of the rattlesnake, threw, threw the shotgun in the back of the car, which, you know, back then all the little trucks had the, the racks of shotguns in the back, you know, and he went to school. And um, he actually got arrested for having that gun on campus. And that's kind of what started my interest in the law in the first place. And it was more of a fairness thing in me that was just, um, I wanted to protect my brother, but I also wanted to see that there was fairness done in the law and that we were helping people and coming up with real world solutions. So that's kind of how I got started with the idea of going to law school. I was working as a disc jockey in radio in college and, um, and I decided that after doing that for several years after, after college that it was great and it was fun and it was exciting every day and I really liked the job, but I just felt like I wanted to do something more. And I kept coming back to that idea of, of the law and fairness and helping people. And that's why I went to law school. That's, that's how I got to law school in the first place was because of my brother and a rattlesnake. <laughs> That is an interesting story. Never heard anything like that. And it's fascinating that you made the switch from, you know, majoring in radio broadcasting and things of that nature into doing this. Um, you will be working for a radio station. What kind of radio station? So I actually worked at three different radio stations during the time that I was a DJ. I worked at an urban contemporary station that would be similar to like K104. Um, I worked at a station that was all jazz. And I worked at a station that was like kind of top 40-ish. And um, one day on the way to work, we had all heard the rumors that we were going to be changing formats and that we all thought it was, well, I won't go into speculation, but I got to work and turned on the radio and found out we had changed to a country station. (laughs) And I was one of three people that still had a job because they felt like my voice and and my presentation on, on the air could go from an urban contemporary station or a, um, a top 40 type of station and could translate into that country. And I really didn't know that much about country music. Um, I kept the job for another six months, but I started in that time realizing that I wanted to do something different. And so that's when I started looking at going to law school. Well, maybe we can get you to co-host or to host <laughs> one of these episodes <laughs> coming up. I did not know that. Wow. But so how did you end up, um, it, it seems like periodically you've done a number of things. You've been, you've been a prosecutor before, yes. um, but you did still kind of dabble in the CPS area. Can you tell us about how you got involved with doing that kind of work and why specifically CPS cases? My first job out of law school, um, once I passed the bar, was at um, a district attorney's office. And it was a small DA's office, so we had many different duties, each, each one of us did. And one of my jobs was representing CPS as their attorney in court. So um, whenever a child was removed by CPS, they would come to me, I would review their paperwork, and I would help them file the case and be their lawyer in court. Um, and I did that on and off for about five years. And um, I, I've done a lot of things since then, but... Um, I've always come back to being a part of the child protection world in some way or the other over these last 28 years. I, again, I'm always drawn to the helping people aspect of it. I'm drawn to the trying to help be one of those boots on the ground people behind the scenes that's making things happen for these children and these families. 
Um, it's not something that you do to get rich. It's not something that you do to get acclimation in any way. It's really hard work, but it's also very fulfilling. Um, I, I have always gone and done other things, but always come back to doing CPS cases. And I'm just so privileged for the last 11 years to be here at the Dallas County Public Defender's Office, and this is all I do all day. Well, we're fortunate to have you here. I mean, that's tough work, and it's heartbreaking work in some instances. We'll talk a little bit more and go into the deep dive of, of what you do and what the challenges are in um, working in this particular field and also what the rewards are for doing that as well. Christy Dean, head of the Capital Murder Division. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you ended up doing this kind of work, but a little bit about your background and your history. I read some of it. Quite an impressive resume. You've done a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of, my career trajectory has sort of been backwards. Like I started at the end and now I'm back at the beginning. I um, worked for the Court of Criminal Appeals and their death penalty section um, on direct appeals and on writs for state death penalty cases. And then I ended up in the district attorney's office um, where I also worked um, on direct appeals for state death penalty cases and, for, and on writs for state death penalty cases. And eventually I really, through various um, circumstances and experiences, became disillusioned with the death penalty. And I just didn't want to do that work for the state anymore. And around the same time, I had that really significant change of heart. This division started, and I got invited to be a part of it. What motivates you to continue doing this kind of work? Part of what's really motivating is I love the statewide and national network of public defenders, and I love the people who are in this field, and I think we feed off each other. I mean, we're constantly on listservs, um, we're constantly talking about new ideas that are out there, and it's a really bright community, and it's, it's, it's interesting to be a part of it, and that kind of like keeps us going, and, and also the fact that we do genuinely care about our clients and want to see the right outcome for them. Now you have an amazing team um, that works with you. Can you tell us a little bit about the team and some of the successes you have had because of the hard work um, and the skill of, of those individuals working on your team? Well, we've got six people in our division. Um, right now we've got two trial attorneys, an appellate attorney, two investigators, and an assistant. And I was counting up the years of experience the attorneys have, and that would be 115, I think. <laughs> We won't break that down, but <laughs> cumulatively, we have quite a bit of experience. Um, you know, we've—I think—success in our world has different a different definition <laughs> than it might for others. I mean, we don't get a—you um, know, like we tried one a case that the state sought the death penalty, and we got a life verdict for our client. Um, we've had a case that got dismissed because our phenomenal investigative team um, you know discovered evidence that that disproved the state's case and basically pointed to somebody else um, that has happened with some frequency actually that where we've had really out outstanding resolutions because of investigative work done by our team and also we're um, really creative in settlement negotiation and we try to you know, humanize our clients in settlement negotiation and talk about some of the mitigating factors in their lives. 
and that helps us to get to a right outcome for our clients too. A lot of success on that front. Very good. Jordan, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and I went to um, a somewhat outrageous private school called St. Anne's. So I went to a school with no grades, where we all called our teachers by their first name, and like Lena Dunham and a lot of other people went to school with me. Not a lot of social justice warriors out of my school, I will tell you that. It's really an art school for the most part, and I, um, I really enjoyed it, but I wanted to go somewhere that was really different than New York City. Um, in my very liberal Jewish background where I grew up. And so I went to North Carolina, I went to Duke for college. And I was like, this will be very different. And it was very different, maybe too different. The first year I really, it was a real cultural adjustment for me to be in a different school um, and different part of the country. I didn't know how to drive a car. Um, and I thought I would be a drama major. And, but I started taking classes relating to Latin America and I had always been interested in languages. So um, I started a drama major and then when I wasn't cast as a lead my sophomore year, I was outraged. Like, I need to come up with another career. <laughs> um, and so I became a languages major. And I started taking classes with a focus on Latin America and cultural anthropology classes. And one of the wonderful things about Duke is they are just dripping with money. And there was all these grant opportunities to travel. So I went to Cuba and I went to Chile. And I traveled a lot in Latin America thanks to Duke's generous funding. And I started meeting um, folks in the home countries who received me so warmly. Um, and I had a really wonderful time living abroad. After graduation, I moved down to Argentina and I did some work with Italian migrants in Argentina. And that's what my thesis had been on, which is I was an Italian Spanish major and I wrote about Italian migration in Argentina. So I started having this issue, interest in Latin America and also this reception as a person living abroad treated so warmly. And in college, when I came back from studying abroad, I started working with an organization that was teaching English to immigrants. And I loved working with immigrants. And I had a really great time being an adult, working with adult, adult education. So when I graduated college, I was not sure what I wanted to do. And if you had told me I was, would go to law school, I would have thought you were out of your mind and how terribly boring that must be. And I would not have agreed that would be a good idea for me. Um, I thought I wanted to work in adult education and maybe do more ESL work. I was also interested in sort of cultural anthropology and performance. And I was figuring some things out. I also like walked dogs for a job and I was a personal assistant. Um, a lot of things to pay my student loans. Um, and then I was looking for jobs working with um, adult immigrants. I thought to do ESL teaching and this legal services job came up and I was like, oh, legal services, how terribly boring, but I have no health insurance. Let me reconsider my career goals. And I applied for the job and it was one of those life-changing moments. The second I started doing legal services, um, I got to see people's lives change on a dime. ESL is a wonderful thing to do and helping give people, immigrants, the skills to communicate in a new country is powerful. But legal services, you see people's lives change immediately. Um, you file for a particular benefit and all of a sudden they have a green card and they can work and they can bring their kids. And I was sold and I loved working in New York. I loved working um, at this particular office. And I said, I'll never go to law school. I'll just stay as an accredited rep because you're allowed to do limited representation even without being a lawyer if you work at an uh, organization that has that capacity, that kind of supervision. And so I said, I won't go to law school. 
and my wonderful boss, Irina Matichenko at the New York Legal Assistance Group said, you have a great mind, you should be a lawyer, I will fire you if you don't go to law school. You cannot sit around here, like you must move on. And I had read an article in the New Yorker about work that the University of Texas was doing suing ICE over a detention center in Texas. And there was this woman, Barbara Hines, who was sort of leading the clinic, and these students were shaking things up and making really powerful changes to how we detain immigrants and how we treat detained immigrants. And I thought, like, my dream would be to go to the University of Texas. And I also knew, because I loved immigration, that I should go to a border state no matter what. So I wanted to go to a border state, and then Barbara Hines was doing this work in Texas. So I applied, and I got in, but they didn't offer me any funding, and I didn't have the money. If I wanted to go into public interest, I thought to go without any financial backing. So I accepted at another law school and was going to go elsewhere. And then they opened up a public interest fellowship, and I applied for it. So very late in the process, I found out that I was accepted with a, a full ride at UT. And I called the law school where I was going to go, and I said, I'm so terribly, I don't know what to do. You guys have really done lots for me to help me start here. And the wonderful public interest counselor at that law school said, you got to go to the University of Texas. you got to go study with Barbara Hines. you got to go do this work. And it was really supportive. So I switched. My first year in law school, I volunteered in the immigration clinic just to be near Barbara Hines and what she was doing. And they were like, you want to come and answer phones as a 1L? And I was like, yes, I want to answer phones in the clinic. I want to be a part of what y'all are doing. And of course, Barbara became my mentor. And I don't make a career decision to this day without talking to Barbara first. Let's do the deep dive into um, the substance of the cases, the kinds of cases that you handle. When you tell us about it, tell us what are the big challenges that you have in the system that you operate in right now. But we're also interested in hearing about the rewarding things that happen in those fields as well. Let's start with you, Rhonda. So I guess we should start from the basics. Um, I mostly represent children in child protection cases that are filed by the state of Texas and are most more commonly referred to as CPS cases. Um, I am assigned to a court and that court is the one that appoints me to cases to represent the children. Now is this a court in the juvenile system or do you work in the juvenile and family courts in Dallas County? So I am assigned to a court that is at the juvenile courthouse, the Henry Way Juvenile Justice Courthouse. The courts there, there are two district courts in that courthouse, and both of them um, are not specialty courts, but they pretty much only handle things that are related to child protection and juvenile justice. Um, those are the, the two types of cases that come through those courts. Um, so, so I do have colleagues in the um, public defender's office that do represent children in um, juvenile justice related cases where they've been accused of some type of crime. But my division um, of four attorneys, we represent mostly children who are taken away from their parents by Child Protective Services and are involved in either a temporary phase of a CPS case or a permanent phase of a CPS case. Okay, in the, in the temporary um, phase of the case, there's a possibility that the parents can get the children back. Is that correct? That is right. Um, so the state of Texas requires that the initial goal in almost all cases where the children are taken into CPS's legal custody, that the parents are given at least a minimum of six months to try to um, achieve family reunification. Um, they're given different um, service goals. 
um, to, to accomplish by the court that are supposed to be designed to try to help the parents overcome whatever was going on in their family's life that was causing either a danger or a risk of danger to the children. Um, the state of Texas has a law that requires that that temporary phase of the case be completed within one year. Um, there is a sometime exception um, in which a case can be extended for another six months. So basically every case where kids come into the legal custody of CPS on a temporary basis is supposed to be concluded in some way, um, whether that's return to the parents, permanent custody to a relative or what we call a fictive kin, which would be like a close family friend, or um, CPS taking permanent legal custody of the children um, for the purpose of finding them another home outside of their parents. So that is supposed to be accomplished within one year under Texas law. Um, when I was first an attorney way back when, 28 years ago, um, we didn't have that law in place. And there were times where children would be in that temporary limbo for five or six years where CPS was continuing to work with the parents, trying to help them do whatever needed to be done to make a safe um, environment for the kids to be returned to. And, and it was very um, hard to achieve permanency for the kids because they were in limbo for so long. Um, and so at some point the state of Texas passed a law which, um, which gave us this one-year timeline. Um, there are good things about it and there are bad things about it. Um, one of the bad things is that many of the children that come into CPS custody are, um, their parents have some type of addiction problem. That's, that's a very key um, reason behind a lot of family dysfunction problems that we see kids come into CPS custody due to. And as we all know, addiction is not easy. Addiction, um, usually when you're in recovery, you relapse at some point. And that one-year timeline doesn't give parents sometimes the amount of time that they truly need to overcome the problems that led to the children coming into care. So it, it can be difficult to um, have that goal of family reunification and really push and put all these resources into it and try really hard and then get to that 10th month <laughs> and get to that 11th month and, and be looking reality of that time deadline in the face and going, you know, they're just not there and they're not going to get there. Or maybe they are going to get there so we can ask for that one-time extension that the judges are supposed to only give in very extraordinary circumstances. So once that decision is made, is there no way to appeal that decision or it's a done deal and the children are permanently removed from their parents and put in either foster care or given to another family member, I would assume. Would you tell us a little bit about that? So there are a whole lot of answers to that question. <laughs> um, if we get to the point where um, family reunification is no longer CPS's stated goal, they have decided that we're hitting that one-year deadline and we don't have what we need to reunify. Um, I, as the children's attorney, can fight that. I can ask for more time for the parents, but we have to have what we call extraordinary circumstances, reasons behind that, or the judge is not supposed to grant it. Um, there was a, a small tweak to the law several sessions ago in the legislature where they now allow us to say, oh, the parents have made a lot of progress and they're very close in their services. They need just a little more time to finish those services. So that is a fairly recent change to the law that allows us a little more time sometimes. 
um, to get that extraordinary circumstances finding granted by the judge. Um, but yes, there are there are some cases that no matter what we have done, um, the kids cannot be reunified with the family safely. So in those cases, we are looking, from the very beginning of the case actually, we're looking for relatives for the kids to live with or what we call fictive kin, which are friends of the family. Um, because one of my primary goals as an attorney for kids in CPS's legal care is to get them out of a foster home. We want them to be with family if they can be with any family that's you know appropriate. So I'm knocking on doors and I'm making phone calls and I'm digging up family members uh, from the very beginning of every case because that's my goal. If the kids can't be safely with their parents, let's get them with somebody that they know and love and are comfortable with while their parents are working through their CPS case. And I've been reading a lot about horror stories where kids are actually sleeping in the offices um, of CPS because there are not enough foster parents out there. That is one of the biggest challenges with people that work in this field right now. There is not enough of what we call the placement array. There's not enough placements for the kids and there's not enough of types of placements for the kids. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, one reason is the pay that foster parents get. Um, there, there is currently um, just recently approved a new um, rate methodology. Um, there were a lot of studies done that were ordered by the legislature, and there are some things that have recently passed that are going to be changing that so that um, there is a better pay scale rate for foster families so that they might. The problem that you have right now is that there are there's a huge amount of privatization in the foster care world where it's not CPS putting them in homes that CPS runs, it's CPS putting the kids in homes that are run by private agencies. So as you can imagine, the homes want the easier kids, right? They don't want the kids that are at the higher levels of care. They want the basic kids, the easy kids. And so those foster homes, because we are not a state that has a a no-reject, no-return rule with foster homes, the foster homes can basically say for any reason, I don't want this kid anymore. And CPS has to find them another place to go within 30 days. Just imagining the effect that it has on kids, and I'm sitting here thinking with Christy sitting next to you, a lot of the um, clients that she ends up representing have been through this system. And part of the issues that they have, the trauma that they've experienced is because they grow up in families where, you know, the children have been taken out of the home and they've been moved around from foster care to foster care. Uh, and we also mentioned that as assistant public defenders in our office, you represent the children. I'm assuming that the parents are assigned counsel as well. So they are. And um, there are attorneys in our office that mostly represent children, but sometimes represent parents as well. And then we have another division of our office um, that mostly represents parents in CPS cases that are not on my particular team. Um, so yes, um, as long as a parent presents himself at court in opposition to the lawsuit that CPS has filed to remove the children, and they can prove that they are indigent, and there's a pretty high level of, of, of what we consider indigency, <laughs> um, they will get a court-appointed attorney for free. And um, in the rare occasions that a court finds that a parent is not really indigent, but they maybe can't afford to get an attorney, um, the court can make arrangements for that parent to put small deposits into the registry of the court. 
um, to pay back the county for some of the cost incurred. So the judges do a really good job of making sure that parents are represented because this is one of the fundamental rights that you have as an American citizen is to parent your children. Absolutely, absolutely. Christy, walk us through the cases that you handle on how you approach the, the case. Um, now, judges have the option to use either public defenders or court-appointed attorneys who are in private practice who do court appointments, and they have to meet certain criteria. First of all, in order to handle these kinds of cases, what kind of background and experience and training should you have in order to qualify to even handle these kinds of complex cases? Um, I'd love to start with um, the statute that generally governs the procedure for appointing counsel to indigent clients, and that's uh, Code of Criminal Procedure Article 2604. And subsection F of that statute requires that in counties with public defender's offices, the court shall give priority to the public defender in capital proceedings absent a record finding of good cause. So in Texas, an assistant public defender may be appointed and the language is in accordance with the office's guidelines. So in our office, what we've done is have our guidelines basically mirror the guidelines that would be used for the private bar in the event that our office is unable to accept the appointment. So if the court makes the specific finding of good cause for not appointing the county public defender, then there are codified requirements that govern appointing somebody else outside of the public defender's office. And they're, they're pretty, they're, their minimum qualifications are that they be a member of the state bar exhibit proficiency and commitment to quality representation. Um, they can't have any findings of ineffective assistance of counsel. They need to have at least five years of criminal law experience, and then they need some substantive experience um, as lead defense counsel on felony cases or cases with high-level punishments and death penalty cases. And they also have to have trial experience in the use of and challenge to mental health or forensic expert witnesses. And they have to have experience in investigating and presenting mitigating evidence at a penalty phase of a death penalty case. And then I think the last qualification is continuing legal education that's specific to death penalty work. And then if you're gonna be a lead appellate counsel, the qualifications are the same except your substantive experience would be in briefing. Um, so our office applies the same guidelines um, basically for our division and all of the attorneys currently employed in the division have more than the minimum qualifications. Um, so when we get a case, um, most of them come in, we will take, a, we are appointed to cases when they are arrested for capital murder. So in the end, that case could be filed differently um, or indicted differently, but we will stay on it if it's, a, if it's a capital murder arrest. And by statute, we assume that all capital murders are death eligible unless the state files a written waiver. Under the current district attorney, there have not been a lot of death penalty prosecutions, maybe zero actually. Um, so I would say that hasn't really changed our approach to our cases though, I mean, we usually have the same approach to a case initially, whether it's a death penalty case or whether it's a case where the state's gonna be seeking the alternate punishment of life without parole. Um, we usually file several things immediately. Um, we have a, a battery of motions and pleadings, uh, requests for discovery, constitutional and evidentiary motions. Um, we file a couple of things within the jail. 
And then most importantly, we start developing our relationship with the client. And the attorneys meet with the client, and then the investigators go in. And it's like the, the crux of our work is the relationship that we develop with the client, and that will ultimately guide how the entire process goes and whether it's successful. And our clients, our, our investigators will sit down with the client and do a ba kind of almost like a cursory appearance review, like how do they look, what's their mental status, are there obvious signs of competency issues, um, is there any indication that they're intellectually disabled, and then kind of from there, they'll move more into what we call a social history, which is where we start really diving into our clients' backgrounds and learning about their families, what neighborhoods they grew up in, um, did they have exposure to trauma, did they have exposure to community violence, uh, were they abused in any way, mentally, physically, sexually. Um, there's a, we have a number of sort of categories we're looking for, you know, was there a pharmacological problem um, do they have traumatic brain injury? There's a, there's a whole bunch of categories we try to ask about slowly as we're developing our relationship and see, um, you know, sort of how these things may have led to the client's current position. And we're also looking for actual innocence. I mean, that it goes without saying that we're testing this, we're going to be testing the state's case. Um, we're looking at the state's evidence. Uh, but to me, like the mitigation piece, which is what the social history is, is the most important. And we will also, the investigators, the investigators are doing the, the traditional investigation work of, of this developing this social history and going out into the community and interviewing, but the, the attorneys go too. We work as a team and um, everybody assumes each other's roles <laughs> on occasion. And we'll go out and basically reinvestigate the whole case and we also will interview family members, of course eyewitnesses, we'll talk to anybody and everybody we can find who knew our client or knows our client. Um, and I would say in either context, you know, our hope is to humanize the client. Um, and, and so in case it is a, a really, you know, horrifying offense, everybody can see how we got to this position. And I, I mean, I would say obviously, in a death penalty context where the state is seeking the death penalty, there's an added layer of urgency. I mean, and you know, we're gonna be, we have somebody's life on the line now. And so what we're gonna be doing with that mitigation evidence is a little bit different in a death penalty context in that we're gonna be starting to introduce that as soon as possible. I mean, that's, we're gonna be having conversations with the prosecution, we're gonna be um, filing motions related to it, you know, for instance, like um, requesting that the, that the death penalty be removed from the table because of our client's severe mental illness or intellectual disability. Um, and then it will, that kind of information will continue to permeate jury selection, uh, the guilt-innocence phase of trial, and then of course the punishment phase. And, and then the other difference really in preparing for a case in which the state is seeking the death penalty is jury selection. Um, jury selection for death penalty cases is individual, which means we get to talk to each prospective juror individually for a set amount of time 
as opposed to a group jury questioning that would happen for um, a non-death penalty case. What's also interesting when uh, I pitched this to our commissioner's court to fund a capital murder division, one of the things that I assured them was that we were going to hire the most experienced individuals um, to do this kind of work. So it's not just having a warm body who has a law degree sitting next to you. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, like I said, the relationship with the client is everything that determines whether you have to have trust. Otherwise, you cannot get to a good resolution in these cases. The other thing I would add to that is you need an attorney who is constantly stretching him or herself. I mean, I think that is like when we're in these cases and the stress is building, it is because we know we have to go the extra mile and we have to be filing things that we have to be doing things that are trending. We have to be out on the frontier of litigation and legal theories and we have to be doing what's best for our client and telling our client's story in an, a compelling way. And that like that requires you to get out of yourself. <laughs> I mean, it is that's um, you know, there's not gonna be a lot of sleep <laughs> and you have to be prepared to go around the clock. Um, and it's rewarding when you get any kind of positive outcome. The reward is so much greater than the effort that you put in. Um, but I, I like, I mean, I think it's imperative that you have that willingness in this practice. Jordan, I can't imagine the challenges that you're having in this environment today, in this country. Um, first of all, start out by telling us, how do you go about working with the lawyers in this office if they reach out to you and they say, have a client that's an immigrant? What do you do? Walk us through those steps. Sure. So um, one of the fantastic things about working at the public defender is that every single attorney in this office is so sensitive to the issues that non-citizens face. So the second that anyone is in court and they're appointed to a new case, they ask the client, where were you born? And are you a United States citizen? If they say no, then the attorney fills out a referral sheet and immediately contacts me. And then I go through the information about, that the attorney has gathered about the client's immigration status, their history, their goals, what do they want to achieve going forward in terms of immigration relief, what are their immigration goals, um, do they have family here, and then we start to work out what type of advice do we need to give them about the charges against them, and what type of resolution would allow them to achieve their immigration goals. So I'm not going to lie, this is a very difficult state and an environment to practice in, um, ICE is very active in Texas, and they have very strong relationships with law enforcement in Texas. There are certain parts of the country where ICE is barred from entering jails, and so that type of collaboration um, doesn't exist, and it means that when someone pleads on a criminal case in, let's say, Chicago, they probably are going to get out without any ICE contact. But in Texas, it's mandated that local law enforcement work with ICE and allow ICE into the jail and hold people for ICE to be um, to apprehend them. So this is a tough environment. Every decision that we make in the criminal court with our clients is going to affect immediately their options for immigration relief. So um, this is sort of a very intense moment um, that we hopefully intervene on their behalf. Um, so it's a, it's, a it's a tough environment working in Texas. We're lucky in Dallas County that I think, uh, particularly now that this program has been around for almost a decade, we've done a good job, I think, also of training the district attorneys to understand there are ways to resolve a criminal case where the state gets what they want 
and we still protect the defendant from having some outrageously disproportionate punishment like deportation. That there's a way to say, yes, the client has maybe misstepped in a particular area, but we can correct that without banishing them from their children for the rest of their life. And I think the work that our wonderful PDs do every day in the courts and the work that we've done with the judges is starting to build a culture to say, how can we all come to the table and come to a resolution that is not so dire for the non-citizen defendant? And um, so although it's an intense environment and we're under a lot of pressure because of the intense collaboration with ICE that is mandated at the state level, um, I think in Dallas we're really lucky that we're building a culture where everyone's trying to work together to protect non-citizens as best we can. So I write a legal memo to the attorney making suggestions about pleas, and I often provide information for the client if we know they're going to go to ICE about what they can do next and what their options are. Um, not quite to the degree that Christy has in terms of not, uh, difficult outcomes or outcomes not being the way that you want them, but there are clients where they will likely be deported and there isn't anything that we can do. But what I hope we can do is give them dignity in an undignified process, let them know what's going to happen, let them make arrangements for the care of their children, let them make arrangements for the other day we helped someone get their truck signed over to a family member so that their family member would have a vehicle when they were gone. Sometimes it's not the outcome that I would want. The outcome I would want would be to keep all the families together. But at a minimum, we let this person move forward with dignity and awareness of what was happening and what their options were, even if we weren't able to keep them here. And the best days are the days where we come to a resolution where the person protects their immigration status and remains with their family. But I think there's value in the work even when we don't get the ideal outcome. I remember there was a young man that um, one of the attorneys was representing that got deported and his girlfriend was expecting and they had no idea that this was going to happen and the office kind of pulled together and and got some money together and bought things for the baby. Uh, but it was kind of a sad situation. Well, yeah, and he was arrested by ICE at his court appearance. And he was actually turning in documents to get a dismissal because he had completed his anti-theft class. And ICE was waiting for him in the courtroom. And he was on the phone with his nine-month pregnant wife. And she started screaming. And she went into labor. And he missed the birth of the child. It was a horrible day. I cried in front of a judge. I'm not afraid to admit it. Um, I am a human. I would like to think first and foremost, and I care a lot about our clients, and it was a very, very rough day. Um, yeah, and there was nothing to be done in terms of preventing his deportation, which is a longer story about his background. But what we did do, and one of the things I was so proud of is the family stepped up for his wife, and we bought things for the baby, and uh, Janie Martin and I got to drive out and present her with all the things that everyone had gathered for her and got to meet the baby, and she was in touch with her husband, and they were working out what they were going to do next. Um, and like, just like you said, sometimes it's not the outcome that you want, but I think a lot of our clients, and this is something that clients have said to me and I'm sure have said to you guys, no time in their life has anyone ever stood beside them or had their back. And sometimes just the sheer gesture of being there, the person standing beside them, advocating for them, even if the outcome isn't the one that they wanted, he felt so supported by our office and so taken care of. And again, obviously, the perfect resolution would have been for it never to have happened. And we got the charge dismissed, but the, the, me the mechanism of ICE was already moving, and all we could do then was be a support to him and his family in whatever capacity we could. Thank you so much, all three of you. You know, I hope our listening audience um, 
has been as an enthralled by the stories that they've been telling and telling um, basically everyone how this office operates, the people that we have in the office, the brilliant lawyers that we have on board. Uh, we're going to have to do this again sometime because there's so many other questions. I'm, pe I'm sure there are people out there who have questions. If you have any questions, you can always contact us here at the Dallas County Public Defender's Office. You can um, call 214-653-3550. If you're listening to the podcast, you like the podcast, please reach out and make a comment. Um, and we don't care. We want the good stuff as well as the bad stuff. If you have questions, if you like the podcast, if you would like to see other topics covered over the next several episodes, we'll be happy to do that. But we really want you to make comments in the comments section um, that helps us to know that if we are doing a good job and if we're providing information to you guys that is helpful, it helps you understand the challenges that we have in the system, but also the good things that are happening. And I think you can see that there are a lot of good things happening at the Dallas County Public Defender's Office. Thank you again, Jordan and Christy and Rhonda. And we will welcome you to tune in again to the Dallas County Public Defender's podcast, The Deep Dive. I hope you enjoyed hearing from our three Dallas County Public Defender Division Chiefs, each representing clients in extremely challenging areas of our justice system. It is apparent that they're all passionate about the work they do representing indigent clients, most of whom come from very underserved communities, dealing with overwhelming challenges like poverty, health disparities, trauma, mental illness, drug and alcohol addiction, unemployment, lack of resources, including homelessness. This work, ladies and gentlemen, is not for the faint of heart. However, I can tell you, after working with these incredible lawyers for years, the commitment to providing effective representation coupled with fierce advocacy is authentic. Their desire to treat their clients with dignity and respect and to provide the type of representation every citizen charged with a crime or dealing with child custody and care issues or immigration challenges is deserving of. Our adversarial justice system only has legitimacy and credibility if people can adequately defend themselves against the power and resources of the state. It is about equal access to qualified lawyers, whether you have unlimited funds or no money at all. It is all about the elimination of disparities, unequal treatment, and unfairness in our justice system. So, thank you once again for listening in to The Deep Dive, and we invite you to listen next time to our podcast where we discuss mental health, diversion programs, and specialty treatment courts in Dallas County. Hello. Find us on Instagram at Dallas Public Defenders or visit our website, dallascounty.org slash government slash public dash defender. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. The Deep Dive is a production of the Dallas County Public Defender's Office, and it is produced by Alexis McCallan, Vicki Rice, Michaela Hines, Paul Blocker, and Lynn Pride Richardson.